Hello and welcome to the Journey Further podcast. My name is Nathan Brush, your host, and this is a show where we learn from the people and businesses who are on a mission to do things differently. Today's guest is Simon Mottram, the founder of Rafa. As you'll learn in this episode, I'm not super into cycling. I hadn't owned a bike for about 15 years until I made a lockdown purchase last summer. What I have always been interested in, though, and a big admirer of, is Rafa as a brand. I think Rafa is part of an increasingly small subset of brands who are truly building something of genuine value and connection, and it comes across in everything that they do. But listen to Simon in this episode, and you'll learn how cycling is about much more than just business to him. It's his true passion, and he believes it has the power to change things for the better. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe and leave a review in your podcast app. Hello, Simon, and uh, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. You're very welcome. Nice to be here. So we'll start the conversation as we do with with every guest by asking you the question, what's the wrong you want to write? I've spent the last 17 years, well, it's probably more like 20 years, with a ridiculous obsession about cycling. Um, and a lot of it comes from me seeing a wrong that I want to write. Um, like lots of people who start companies, I suppose you start a company because you see something missing and you want to make that good. And the wrong that I would like to write is it is a crying criminal shame that the sport that I love, both as a professional sport to watch, but also as a pastime to do, which is cycling, is still seen as being niche, irrelevant, geeky, off-putting, humorous sometimes, ridiculed not mainstream compared to football it's you know it's a small rounding error um, doesn't even get a paragraph in the back of the newspaper apart if we still read newspapers apart from possibly when the tour de france is happening um and i felt this for a long long time and it's something it's i'm so passionate about riding a bike and also the sport that i love watching that that's why i started rafa the company that i started in 2004 was to just give it more attention and make it more aspirational and try and give people something they could be proud of. Um, so that's been my journey so far. And what ignited your passion for cycling originally then? So originally when I was a kid, I mean, we all rode bikes as kids. Um, I'm a bit older than you, but I'm not sure if kids these days all do, but we all rode bikes. Um, and when I was in my teens, we used to go to France quite often on holiday. And my dad would sometimes take us to see a local bike race because that was something very French to do um, and I got quite into that and then in about 1982 so I guess I was 16 Channel 4 started showing the Tour de France and that sort of ignited this sort of fascination with this professional sport um, and I didn't really dive into it as a enthusiast until I was in my mid-20s you know I spent far too long drinking too much and smoking too many cigarettes <laughs> and all sorts of things but it, it sort of it came round to me and I started riding a bike and I connected the two in my mind and in my life very clearly that I could watch this racing and be inspired by it. But also I could buy this beautiful thing for not that much money and I could go out and ride. And the things it gave me, you know, personally, physically, mentally, socially, all sorts of benefits, which I will probably bore you to death about in the next few minutes, um, were so profound. Um, I just thought this is amazing. You know, and, it, and it's been one of the most significant things in my life, I'd say, you know, after my children and my wife and 
that's probably it. I think it's probably the, the <laughs> third most significant thing that's happened in my life is um, discovering cycling. And I am just evangelical about it. It's just, it's the greatest thing you can do. Um, so, yeah, so it started when I was a kid. It really took off in my 20s. And then I didn't start Rafa till I was in my sort of mid to late 30s. And because you, you obviously, you, you had quite a long career in branding before starting Rafa. What, what was the kind of trigger point where you thought, you know what, I, I'm, I'm going to take some of the skills I've learned and sort of align them with that personal passion, that sort of tension that you felt within, the, within cycling and to do something about it? What was the kind of the, the trigger point? Yeah, well, I've always been passionate about design and brands and marketing, and it's, it's something that I have, I have some professional experience in. And if you are that kind of person, and in the 90s, lots of people sort of woke up to the importance of design. And, and you know, I worked in that field. If you're that kind of person with that kind of perspective, and then you look at cycling as a industry and as a pastime, it was the land that in many cases style had forgotten. You know, it, it was it was really unappealing. Bike shops were terrible. Um, there was nothing to read. There was almost no, no content to consume. If you wanted to buy clothing, it was, you know, in horrible colours. It was really quite difficult to wear um and it didn't match to me the the image and the sort of you know the, the experience i had of watching racing and what was in my head when in my head when i was riding a bike i was louise on bobe or you know not not eddie Merckx, so i wasn't that good but you know just a tour de france winner uh, you know i was one of these heroes on some beautiful tuscan climb or you know on some sun-kissed road and in my mind you know, I was that kind of athlete with this lovely sort of, you know, look. And yet I was pulling on this sort of bright yellow or bright blue sort of skin tight stuff with flashes all over it. And it was pretty challenging. You know, you had to be quite brave to wear stuff, cycling gear in those days, because, you know, people, you were open to ridicule quite appropriately because it looked ridiculous. So, you know, I, so I spent all my time going into bike shops and obviously spending a bit of money and wanting to spend more than I actually could because there wasn't much to buy. And just going, this is ridiculous. And and at, at the time I was thinking about, I wanted, always wanted to have my own brand. It was something that, you know, I, I think was sort of destined for me to do. And I tried various different business plans. I, you know, I toyed with various ideas of agencies and other sort of product companies. And I ended up always coming back to this point that the thing I love was cycling. And at the last, you know, the last, minute of the night when you're at your kitchen table and you're doing a bit of work and you're thinking about things it was always the cycling gap that was the thing that that captured me and I'd spend another hour or two researching and putting ideas together so it just sort of snowballed really from that and so I suppose my yeah my brand and design experience helped me to identify the problem but it was only when I started looking deeper into the history of the sport that I could see the answer you know, the answer was that it didn't used to look like this. You know, it didn't used to look like it looked in the 90s. It used to look a whole lot better. And it could mm. be shown to be a whole lot better. And there was much more to it than even I, that I knew. You know, there was so much, so many more stories. There was so much more incredible human experience in bike racing. Um, and as I rode more, you could feel it a bit as well. You know, you could start to feel some of the, in a very, very small way, you know, you could feel some of these sensations that, connected you to what the sports stars would be feeling and you could go and ride in the same mm. roads you know so i'd be riding in the alps or i'd ride in the pyrenees and you know it, it all starts to connect in my it's connected in my mind um so i think the expertise was was pretty helpful actually to identifying the problem 
And I guess because I was slightly older, I think lots, if I tried to do it in my 20s, I wouldn't have had the confidence probably or the network to be able to do something. But I was in my mid to late 30s, so I kind of already had a good network. And I just thought, yeah, I've got to do it. I've just got to do it. It has to exist. I've got to show the world that this thing can be better. And I guess in, in terms of changing those perceptions then, what do you feel has maybe changed over the last 10 to 15 years? And I guess ultimately what's the vision for you? Like what 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 role would you like to see cycling play in, in society in, in, in the future? Where would you like us to get to? Yeah, the, answering the second point first, because it's the easiest point. You know, I, I started out writing in the business plan that I wanted it to be the most popular sport in the world. I want cycling to be the most popular sport in the world. Sport with a small s. So the thing that people do for, you know, for exercise, but also the professional sport. We've got a hell of a long way to go. But, you know, I, I, I want as many people to watch with engagement bike racing as watch football. I mean, you know, a bit of a tall order, that one. But, you know, um, I think you know, football is just a game, whereas cycling is, is life. You know, it's got so much more. But anyway, um, but also much more practically, it's the solution to so many of life's problems. It's, it's the solution. You know, most social um, economic trends are pointing to us riding bikes. Um, you know, walking and riding bikes is the future. It's the future for cities. It's the future for health. It's the future for well-being. Um, and it's it's going to happen. I mean, actually, it is going to happen. I can't see that the forces are so strong. I can't see us not getting there. But it might just take 50 years and it should take five or 10 years. You know, we should mm. leap there a lot quicker. So I'd like to see all kids riding bikes. I'd like to see the vast majority of bike trips, you know, the vast majority of bike trips in cities being, uh, of, of daily trips in cities being by bike. Um, and I'd like to see people riding till they're in their 70s because you can, um, and therefore seeing the, the health benefits and the reduced costs on the health service and the reduced cost of mental, you know, stress, because I often say to people in the company that riding a bike is my daily therapy. It's the thing that keeps me sane. And Lord knows in the last 18 months, we've had 12 months, we've had quite a lot to struggle with. Um, if mm. I hadn't been able to ride my bike, you know, we were lucky we could keep riding in London all the way through it. Just for half an hour, an hour a day, it just makes everything make sense. There's something about mm. the rhythmic nature and the circular motion of riding a bike and the sort of the, the momentum and the fact you're outdoors and it's, you know, you're in the, in the natural environment, you finish a ride and everything seems better every time. I mean, it, literally a hundred percent of the time I'll get off the bike and feel better. So, you know, I think everyone can feel the benefit of that too. So I, I think it can have, the bicycle can have a profound effect on societies and it will do. I'd just like to accelerate that. Yeah. I completely subscribe to that. As I say, I, I started, I bought a bike last year and started commuting into the office for those sort of, you know, there was a couple of months towards the back end of last year when it was kind of, a, we were a little bit free again. And I realized one of the big things I'm missing now, yeah, is going to the office, but it's getting on the bike in the morning and having that, as you say, it's emotion, it's a feeling which just makes you feel good and wakes you up and makes you feel alive. And you can see people during the lockdown last year, you could see people riding for almost the first time with a smile on their face. And you could see the sort of the scales falling away from their eyes. Ah, this is what it's supposed to be like. And it helped that there was little traffic and 
mm. there was some sort of half-hearted attempts at putting in bike lanes. So, you know, it was slightly easier to do, but it didn't take much for people to sort of to wake up and realize, oh, this is what I could do much more often. And it's not something I could I should just do when I'm on holiday somewhere in some closed environment, you know, or out in the countryside. I can do it in the city. And it, you know, something like it's less than two percent, I think, of of journeys in London are done by bike every day. And it, you know, it should be fifty percent. You know, journeys mm-hmm. of less than a couple of miles. You know, of course the bike is perfect for that and it's and you feel better for doing it. So yeah. Yeah, we're all waking up to it. Hey there, just a very brief interruption to invite you to join a special community we run here at Journey Further. It's called the Journey Further Book Club. We share bite-sized insight from the world's best business books, all aimed at helping you learn and get ahead in both your professional and your personal life. Just go to journeyfurther.com or hit the link in the show notes to sign up for free. Now back to Simon. When you look internationally as well, I guess it's a, the, the cultural attitudes are so different. Even obviously people always pick out Amsterdam as an example or Holland, the Netherlands more broadly as an example of a country which has just got a completely different attitude towards cycling. It's almost strange how we haven't been able to see the benefits and adapt. Yeah, but it, always, it wasn't always so in the UK. You know, we do see it all over the world. You know, there, there are cities that and places you just wouldn't expect, like New York City, putting in infrastructure and starting to adapt to make it easier to ride bikes. And we, you know, we think of the UK as being this car dominated country, which it sadly is, much as I love cars, by the way. (laughs) But, you know, it's terrible the hold it has over us. But it wasn't always like that. You know, if you go back um, 100 years, you know, to the beginning of the last century, there were so many people riding for, for social purposes and and just to get around it was a mass participation sport it was something that everyone did as part of their everyday life and people would go off youth youth hosteling and it was men and women and they were wearing fairly regular clothes they didn't feel they had to wear skin suits to go out with a pointy helmet you know they they were just out riding and it was a national pastime and it's you know it's really just the some some issues internally within cycling, but also just the rise of the car. That's an urban planning adapting yeah. to that. That's that's just it seems so far away. It's only a hundred years ago, so we can get it back. And you're right. Some cities like Amsterdam and Copenhagen have gone further than others. Yeah. So you're starting to see um, cities all over the world in Asia, US, um, Europe, investing in infrastructure, but also changing the law so that there's more protection given to pedestrians and cyclists. Whereas, you know, at the moment, frankly, it's you know, good luck, basically, if you go out there because mm-hmm. you don't have much legal protection. Um, whereas in Germany, if you're hit by a car, the onus, the, the presumption of guilt is on the motorist. You know, the larger vehicle is always presumed to be guilty. They're not always guilty. It's not like you suddenly, you know, always, it's not always the car's fault. It can be the cyclist's fault, but the presumption is there. And it just changes attitudes and makes people more respectful of cyclists and walkers and, you know, people who are more vulnerable. So law the law can make a big difference too when it comes to the elite end of the sport it feels to me i guess my perception my personal perception is that there's quite a big void or quite a big gap between the sort of everyday cyclist the amateur cyclist and the the super specialized elite top end of the sport it feels like there's a there's such a big void to to cover in that respect what do you what do you think on that I think a couple of things. One is one thing is I don't think it's as big a problem as you might think. 
you know, there is a big void because cycling is so much more broader as an activity than, say, playing football. You know, playing football, kicking a ball against a garage door through to Ronaldo playing, you know, in the Champions League, there's a sort of, you can see, it's still somebody kicking a ball because that's basically all it is. Let's be honest. <laughs> you know, there's nothing to it. Whereas if you're just riding down to the shops, of course, that's a long, a much further way on a continuum from somebody racing up Alpe d'Huez. You know, it's a different place. It's a completely different activity. It's, you know, one is a super sporting activity and the other is urban mobility. Um, and they're choosing to do that rather than walk or get in their car. So I think it's no problem that there's a big gap. I think where it is a problem is that for those people like me, and as you will find when you start riding a bit further and pushing yourself a bit more, for those of us who who understand and feel the, the joy of riding a bike properly, you know, I hate the word properly, that's not true, but, but just getting a bit further in, involved and trying to push themselves a bit and going a bit faster, a bit further, that feeling and that, that um, fulfillment you get, there's a, a much closer relationship between that and, mm. you know, Mark Cavendish winning on the Champs-Élysées or somebody climbing up on Alpe d'Huez than the person going down the shops. And the problem is, one of the problems is that the sport has not been very good at connecting those two things up. So there's been a massive boom in people buying carbon fibre road bikes and going and riding around Richmond Park or going abroad. And, you know, generally it's people my age and, um, and it's wonderful. You know, people are getting fitter and they're having a great time. While that's been happening, the professional sport's not grown at all. Mm. You know, it's not reached any more people. And actually many of those people who do take part in it as an enthusiast don't really watch the racing because the racing's impenetrable. There's all sorts of problems with professional racing. So I think on the one hand, it's not a problem that the person going to the shops doesn't feel a connection with um, Alberto Contador. On the other hand, it's a real problem that I don't feel as much a connection or that somebody like me doesn't. Mm. And that's a problem for the sport, which Rafa is, we're doing our best to try and address. You know, we're trying to make it more interesting. We're trying to bring the stories to people. We're trying to make it more human because it doesn't help when you've got all these professionals wearing sunglasses and helmets, all wearing the same identical kit. It's with these rules of the racing that you don't understand. If you're just watching it, you can't tell why, why doesn't the fastest person win every time? You know, what, why is that person sitting on the front all that time when they have no chance of winning? You know, what, 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 why are they all zag, zigzagging across the road? What's that all about? It's, it's impenetrable. And then you add to that, the fact that the calendar of the racing is completely all over the place. There's five races, on the same day during the spring <laughs> which one am i supposed to watch yeah. yeah it's not the same as the champions league where there is a group stage semi-finals final and you know who's the best um in professional racing it's not like that so there are loads of problems which and you know in our small way at rafa we're trying to help break those down and and make it because when you do understand it it's brilliant it's so much more interesting but god do we make it hard for people so coming to rafa then thinking about this this change you're trying to make what what are the things you've really invested in in rafa to try and make an impact to try and change this perception and what 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 would you say are the key things there the first thing which i mean it's hard enough to get a company started in the first place so <laughs> a lot of the efforts in the first few years were just really about establishing the company but and, and the business but from day 1 what i was trying to do was to make it more aspirational make make road cycling and road racing a more aspirational thing 
So we focus a lot on design. We focus a lot on photography. We did we made films, you know, very early. We did lots of content. We put on events. We basically tried to showcase the sport in a way that the industry wasn't doing, or we didn't see the industry doing it. So so some of just by making it more aspirational, you know, you can get quite a long way. If people look at it and go, oh, that looks really cool. I don't understand anything about it, but that that jersey looks really cool, or that guy looks, you know pretty hot wearing what he's wearing mm. or it's you know often we'd find because we we sold just to men in the first few years we'd get customers saying you know i've never had my wife compliment me on how i look when i leave the door to go riding and now she does and you know <laughs> things like that really help so the first the first few years was about just about raising the standards of design and product and content for the sport and then we started to build a community so so then it was about reaching more people we opened clubhouses in lots of cities around the world. We started a members club, which is the Rafa Cycling Club. It's got 20,000 members now, who people who pay to join and hang out. And we, we started to build a real community. And that's quite powerful because those people then stay involved in the sport and they tell more people and it hopefully starts to get some momentum. Um, and more recently, as we've got a little bit bigger and we've got a bit more influence, we've started to engage in the bigger issues. You know, for, for the first 10 years, you can't engage in the bigger issues because you can barely stay alive. You know, you haven't got a big enough company. Um, but we now have the funds and the scale and the influence to be able to start to address some of the bigger issues. So we have a thing called the Rafa Foundation, which gives one and a half million dollars a year to grassroots organizations. And these are exactly the people you were talking about who connect kids and young people who want to start racing or want to get on the ladder of how to become somebody who's a racer. It helps them get on that ladder. And they're all over the world, these grantees. We've been doing it for three years now, so we've given a lot of money out to these organisations. We're about to launch a big initiative with British Cycling. We've done something with Hearn Hill in the UK. Um, And that directly targets people who are disadvantaged or for whatever reason, cycling is just irrelevant to them. So let's make it more relevant. Let's give them these pathways and give them this, this ladder. So we've started to do that. And, and we're starting to have a voice in policy and what have you, you know, which, which is a big, difficult life, probably lifelong journey mm-hmm. to go on. But we have to start lobbying for change. Um, and, we've, and two, three years ago, we wrote a, we did a piece of research called the Rafa Roadmap where we interviewed 100 people from across the, the racing world to say, what's wrong with the race? Yeah, what's wrong with racing? What's wrong with our shop window? How can we make the shop window better so that more people look at it? You know, so Nathan, who's bought a bike in lockdown, doesn't think that bike racing is weird and for geeks. He actually thinks it's interesting. What can we do to change that? And it, we came up with 15 different initiatives and we started to enact that. Uh, we published it and we've got a big debate about it. And we started to enact that in all the sponsorships that we do. Um, so we're doing what we can. That's really interesting. One of the things you mentioned now is around community. And I think a lot of people's perception in the marketing world about community now, they think about, oh, well, a community is 10,000 Instagram followers or 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. But it feels like your thoughts around community and what community means to Rafa is much deeper than that. Yeah, words get debased, don't they? You know, differentiation. Yeah, lots of marketing words. People can grab them and say they've got them um, and they start to lose their meaning. Um, yeah, I, Yes, somebody subscribing to something for naught pence and who looks at it you know, once every few weeks on their phone, yeah, I suppose they're part of a community, but 
by that all it means is it's a community of people a grouping of people there's no real engagement between them and the brand or them and the rest of the community what i'm much more interested in is real community where people really do sort of create friendships you know they create connections and they have physical lived experiences you know that's i know it seems weird to imagine that at the moment with lockdowns only just lifting but um there's so much more value in that and when we started the rafa cycling club i I was in australia um a few years ago and a customer came up to me and said i just want to talk to you about why i love rafa and i said lovely and he said it's not the products you know they're fine but it's not the products he said what i love about rafa and the rafa cycling club is that you give me that something that no other brand gives me and i said what's that he said you give me memories and friendships I've, I have profound memories of all the things that I've done with other club members that the brand has put on and that we've come together to do. Mm. And through doing those things, not only have I got memories, but I've also created what will be lifelong friendships mm. with people. Um, and you can also have, you know, friendships with people from the club all over the world. You know, obviously you can have virtual friendships too. So to be in the business of creating memories and friendships is much more valuable, I think, than getting people to subscribe to an app um which you know doesn't mean much to me that's that's interesting as you say it it sounds like that that type of customer insight is what you sort of i guess obsess about in terms of the brand that you've built and the, the 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 fame and the loyalty as you say that doesn't doesn't easily come about by just doing lots of advertising um it comes about by like as you say by trying to find those that really strong customer insight i guess what's been your approach to that and how's that challenge sort of developed as you've got bigger and bigger and i guess as you've got global as well yeah and we've been we've been international from pretty much from day one because we were online from 2004 when we launched so that enabled us to have a customer base all over the world you know more than 100 countries in the first few years so it's something we've grappled with for a long time it is quite hard to do you know this, this is not an easy path it really helps though when your when your brand and your business is about something you know if you if you're just kind of trying to sell good products that's quite a hard thing to try and really create belonging and engagement around i think um and i pity those people who are just selling another you know another version of another product mm. that goes on a shelf you know that's that's really hard to do when you're trying to sell cycling which is what we're doing actually it's not hard because all you have to do is start having the conversations. All you have to do is show your passion for it and reveal it, reveal the thing to people, and they'll fall in love with it. You know, you will fall in love with it, Nathan. At some point, you you will go, actually, this is an amazing thing. Mm. And you and your friends will go off and you'll, you know, go bikepacking or something, and it will become part of your life because it's so good. So it's it helps a lot that, that the product itself is really good. And then all you have to do, which is the hard thing, is honour it in everything you do. So, you know, with every product you make, every piece of communications you do, every film or, you know, photo story, every interaction that somebody has with somebody from your brand has to honor that, the quality of what you're offering, which is cycling. Um, and so that's what we spend a huge amount of time on. It's very much a culture first thing. You know, you've got to get it inside the company first, otherwise you'll never get it out into the, the population. And I, and I really, you know, I'm not interested in signing up hundreds of thousands of customers to buy once. That's like, that seems like the most ridiculous thing mm. ever. You know, what we've, we've failed if that happens, because basically every interaction that we've had has failed. It's not been good enough. 
you know, what we want is to have relationships with people for, you know, two, five, ten years, you know, and beyond, because we want them to keep riding. And if they keep riding, then hopefully they will stay relevant to us and we'll still have a relationship with them. So that that's our mission. And I guess I always think that brands that appear so strong in the outside world, as you mentioned there, typically have a really strong culture that runs through the business internally. It's people who can uphold that message and, and that vision. I guess, what's the culture like at, at Rafa? Is everyone a, a, a crazy cyclist? Uh, not everyone's a crazy cyclist. I mean, almost everyone is a cyclist. The people who aren't cyclists are given every opportunity to become cyclists. And, you know, it's my failing if they don't ride at all. Um, but you don't have to be a cyclist to work at Rafa. I'm pretty convinced that after a year or two of working at Rafa, you will become a cyclist because, you know, if I can't convince them to take it into their lives, how can I convince a customer to do it? So, so yeah, we're, we're pretty passionate about it. I mean, our core values, we have four core values. The first one is love the sport, meaning love cycling. I mean, so it's pretty hard to live that value if you never get engaged in cycling mm. at all. So we bed that into our the way our company runs in lots and lots of different ways, you know, subtle ways and, and very obvious ways, you know, everything's called something to do with cycling. You know, we have awards and internal sort of motivational stuff that's all using cycling language to, to get things across. Everyone can ride on Wednesday mornings, um, as I did this morning, you know, and that's fine. You know, you have flexi time. Nobody's going to ask you a question if you've ridden on Wednesday morning. We all ride together every quarter from our office. Um, you get time off to go and do sportives or, you know, do a trip. So we we bake it in as much as we can. Also, looking back over the last uh, year or so, obviously it's posed all sorts of challenges for all sorts of different businesses. I guess what are the biggest challenges it's posed to you guys at Rafa, and has it made you has it made you rethink the way that you might do things in the future in any in any respect? Oh, there's been loads of challenges. <laughs> you know, it's it's very hard to to make and sell products globally. Um, and continue to do that well and not lose your shirt <laughs> it's just a really hard thing to do you know it's um we have 35 suppliers around the world we have you know multiple options and you know products in our range um all of them have to be really good all of them have to be there on time all of them have to be sold really well and yeah we're direct to consumer so it's up to us everything comes down to us we're not relying on a wholesale partner to do our selling for us. We have to do everything. So it, it is really challenging to do that and to do it at scale globally. Um, but we're sort of, you know, we're, we're learning how to do it. It's um, as, Although it's hard to be direct to consumer, it's, it's the best place to be by a million miles. I'd hate to be removed from the customer. You know, we get so much direct feedback um, and we can deliver stuff direct to the customer and, we know who these people are and in many cases they're our friends and all they're, they're members of the of the brand so that gives you so many more advantages so it is hard and it's hard to scale it's hard to keep keeps tens of millions of pounds on stock and hoping you'll sell it as you say i guess like d2c is something which lots of big organizations are now having to grapple with and trying to digitally transform but it's kind of what you guys have, have done since since day one but it, it speaks completely to also that connection which you need to get the message across not just to sell the product but to make the change that you're looking for yeah no totally i mean I, I, we used to joke back in the early days of the internet that me and my brand consulting friends <laughs> sort of strange group but we, we used to talk some of us would, would talk about how really 
the only good brands are direct to consumer. You know, how can you be a really good brand if you're not direct to consumer? Mm. Because it's the world's changed and there's so much more transparency and people expect it now. And how can you really have incredible customer engagement if you are at two or three steps removed from that transaction or that moment? Um, the closer you are to the customer, the closer you are to the experience the customer has, the better your brand can be. I, I totally believe that. But it's also easy to mess it up. Mm. As you say, I guess people are looking for, people are valuing sort of purpose-driven brands like yours more and more. Are there, are there any other brands that you really look to and really, really admire for taking the kind of approach which you believe in? Well, I always used to, the brands I used to admire the most were Apple and Nike back in the day and used to use them as, when I was consulting 20 years ago, mm. They were the, the brands that I thought did it right. Um, and they're now so big that it's, it's almost irrelevant to talk about them as just brands per se. Mm-hmm. They're, they're whole countries, aren't they, really? Um, I mean, you're wearing a Patagonia cap. Purpose-driven brands doesn't get more directly understandable than Patagonia. And the way that they've steadfastly stuck to that mission um, over the last 20 years and poured more and more effort into it I, I, yeah, I don't think it's an accident what's happened to Patagonia, and I don't think they're just fortunate. I think they've worked at it, and it's it's totally authentic. Um, so yeah, I, I think they're all brands to admire. I tend to prefer personally. I tend to prefer brands that are very focused and are about something mm. very specific. You know, that once they get global, become global entities, it's hard to sort of for me to get my hands around them. If you see what I mean. So you know, I, I love. There's a brand in London called Noble Rot who is a wine brand and they started out with a magazine now they have two restaurants and you know exactly what they're all about you understand their point of view about wine you understand who's going to be in there you kind of it it all rings true everything totally rings true and it helps that they're small to be able to sort of to craft that i think Um, but yeah they're the sort of brands i like it's that authenticity isn't it like you said there which it takes a long time to uh build that you can't you can't suddenly be seen as authentic overnight and yeah i guess the the examples rafa patagonia example it's a it's a product of long-term commitment like a long-term vision which i think is often um, missing from a lot of people who are trying to sort of start and scale businesses today i think it's brilliant i think it's really brilliant that marketing is no longer seen as some kind of special source and some kind of witchcraft that can take something mundane and undifferentiated and somehow make it really exciting and i think you know advertising at its best can still do that but that's so dumb isn't it it's so much better in a world where lots of us have got far too much stuff and don't need very much that the things that cut through are things that are real you know, and, and marketing becomes revealing what's real rather than obfuscating that and trying to change perceptions and manipulate perceptions away from what's real, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, I think the best marketeers never did that, but um, there were quite a few charlatans out there. Um, I think it's brilliant for, for, for consumers and for society that we have things that matter. Um, I haven't got time for... People are only in it to make a buck. I mean, that's, you know, you don't need that. So Simon, I'm, I'm conscious of time. So I've got three final questions to, uh, to ask you. Firstly, what did you used to believe that you no longer believe in? So I'm, I'm a consultant by training. Um, 
and read a lot of books, read a lot of business books back in the day. Fortunately, don't read many now. Um, but I used to think that it was all about having the best plan and the best idea. And if you if you really got the best idea and the best plan and the best strategy, you know, if you didn't have that, you weren't going to win. You had to have that, and that was what what was going to make the difference between success and failure. And the experience of you know twenty years nearly of doing Rafa. I mean, I think we did have a good idea, and it you know it, it wasn't wrong, but I think it's so much more about grit and execution and persistence and just you know complete well suffering we'd say in cycling terms. Mm. It's about execution. You know, nothing matters until you've executed it. You can have the best plan in the world, but it means nothing at all. Um, it's just hypothetical, and where the rubber hits the road, or you know where something touches the customer in reality that's what matters mm. um and the drive and the persistence to keep doing that and to learn and keep moving and keep trying matters more than the best plan in the world i think um obviously if your plan is terrible and you keep trying you're probably going to lose your shirt and die <laughs> die trying so you've got to have a bit of a good idea but there are there are so many great business plans sitting in drawers or you know in in waste paper bins um because somebody didn't do them mm. and some of the best businesses in the world didn't come out of some super clever idea they came out of total passion and commitment um so I, that's what i now believe that i didn't believe in the past you know when you're a smart consultant you think oh yeah i'll just think this through and i'll come up with the best idea but um yeah i don't think it's like that so yeah so how do you approach the planning now then how do you approach the like with that different mindset what do you do differently yourself it's sort of different when you become a bigger company. I mean, we're not very big; we're about a hundred million pound turnover. So, yeah, we're not out of the woods yet, if you put it that way. I think it's still so so important to commit and to to be obsessive and to drive and be ambitious and push, push, push. And it's definitely something which we drive into our company. I think we have options now; we have choices. So actually having good plans and having good ideas and strategies becomes something that we can do something with mm. because we've got we've reached a certain scale. But in the first 10 years, actually that wasn't the point at all. It was about execution. So I think it becomes it becomes more about strategy as you get bigger and as you start to become a bit more stable. Um, but it's still, yeah, still if you, if your organization isn't isn't primed behind it and it isn't executing. Yeah it won't work yeah. you know so I, I think it's, it's a it's a balance now um but i still yeah perspiration is still the most important thing i think it's like being on a bike you know you can have incredibly prodigious physical attributes as a cyclist but actually you've got to learn how to suffer you know if, you, if you're going to do that 200 miles or you know more than 100 miles or whatever is your goal there's going to be moments when you're going to run out of juice and you're going to have to dig deep and the people who dig deep are the ones who make it and they're the ones who actually find out more about themselves at the end of the day as well so yeah it's a kind of way of life i suppose yeah i know that's really interesting i get the parallels between as you say the parallels between the sport and the actual way that you approach graffer and going the business and life are, are really clear yeah and our, our staff do that you know our staff work incredibly hard because because uh, it's a mission and because they're passionate about it and it's in the culture and if they didn't you know, we don't have to do all the things we do. We don't have to try and change the sport. We don't have to try and make cycling the most popular sport in the world. It's just the sort of the curse that we've given ourselves. 
but it's only their persistence that gets them to do that. And, you know, one of our core values is suffer, you know, it's, and it doesn't mean hurt yourself. It means, you know, good enough is not good enough. You've got to keep pushing, keep pushing. Um, and yeah, they're, they're brilliant at doing that. So secondly, Simon, in a, in a parallel universe, if, if this wasn't your mission, I guess making cycling the most popular sport in the world, what, what would be? It's a close run second, actually. My son has autism and has um, severe learning difficulties. He's, he's 26 years old. Um, and it's been a 26-year challenging journey um, through which we've learned a lot and we've, we've definitely suffered and we've definitely done all the things that you do on a bike as a family. And, you know, 1% of the UK population is classified as on the autistic spectrum. You know, it's, it's a not an epidemic but it's common challenge and when you combine it with learning difficulties it's really really um tough and i think my you know what could i imagine getting out of the bed of out of bed every morning and really being passionate about doing it would be making the lives of people with autism better and there's so much work to be done Mm. you know and and it's so badly understood throughout society it's badly funded it's badly supported it's there are legal challenges which we've had to take on. There's, there's, a, there's so much in the way um, that that would be my mission, would be to, to make their lives better. Yeah, an incredibly worthwhile cause. Um, and then finally, Simon, if you could recommend one book for members of the Journey Further Book Club to read, what would it be? Well, it's a recommended for you, recommendation for you, Nathan. So there's a book by Tim Crabbe, K-R-A-B-B-E, and it's called The Rider. And it's a work of fiction. Um, I love I love reading novels. And sadly, in cycling, as in lots of sport, there aren't many novels. It's generally biographies, and you know, it's nonfiction. The Rider is by this Dutch guy. It's just the most perfect story arc of a story. It's only about 120 pages long. It's the, the construct is a mythic, a semi-fictional race in the south of France in the 1970s. And you have the protagonist and then you have his competitors. And through the story of this one day race, he, he laces in the history of the sport, all the codes of the sport. He gets deep inside the rider's mind. And it's a beautiful story and it's beautifully written. Um, so I've recommended it to lots of people who are not even cyclists who've enjoyed it as a work of fiction. But if you ever ride a bike, it's it just everything makes sense when you read that book. So when you join Rafa as an employee, you're given a copy of the rider and have been since we started. So, um, yeah, I'm really passionate about that book. All right. I'm going to pick up a copy. Um, well, Simon, at the start of the interview, you asked me whether, um, hope, well, you asked me hopefully by the end, whether I'd be more inspired to to cycle a bit more. And I think I definitely am, particularly with the weather, uh, looking like, (laughs) looking like this. It's easier in spring than it is in the beginning of winter. That's for sure. (laughs) No, well, uh, thanks for your time, Simon. Obviously, I, th- I think Rafa is a, an amazing brand and with such a powerful mission as well. And yeah, I, I completely subscribe to what you're saying about the power which cycling could, could have in the world. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the very end. I hope that means you found that conversation as interesting and as insightful as I did. If I could recommend one other older episode for you to listen to along similar lines, it would be the interview I did with Shamil Thakra, the founder of Dishoom, back in season one. Shamil talks about his philosophy for growing a business and a brand, which he terms as deepen, don't dilute. And towards the end of that episode, I actually asked Shamil 
which brands he admires for taking a similar approach. And he names Simon and Rafa. So yeah, do go and check that out. I think you'll enjoy it. If you have any other feedback, thoughts or ideas for me, I would love to hear them. It's podcast at journeyfurther.com or do connect with me on LinkedIn. My name's Nathan Brush. And of course, if you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and you'll be the first to receive all new episodes. See you soon.